Last Sunday in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we talked about being bodybuilders, pumping up the body of Christ by eliminating pride, building uh, diversity in unity, and being open to manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And the theme of bodybuilding continues this week in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as Paul reveals the secret of getting ripped or cut or swole or whatever word you want to use to talk about building up or pumping up the body of Christ. And there are these goofy ads that I see from time to time. Maybe you've seen one of them. It's this guy who uh, claims to have the secret to losing weight and putting on muscle until you look shredded. And in one ad, he's hanging from a pull-up bar by one hand and he's curling this heavy weight in the other hand and he says something along the lines of, if you think putting on on extra amounts of muscle requires strenuous exercise like this, then you're wrong. Then in another ad, he shows uh, videos of people running and doing cardio exercise, and he says something along the lines of, if you think more cardio is the way to lose weight and look great, think again. And and then there are still other ads the same guy puts out where he's got uh, common foods that he shows pictures of uh, that people usually associate with eating healthy or weight loss, so he'll show a picture of like a a banana or a vegetable or a salad, and every time a new picture comes up, he claims that those foods will not help you lose weight and put on muscle. So the question is, if it's not diet and it's not exercise, I guess this guy has discovered the secret to being lazy and swole at the same time, like to just being a bum and looking great all at the same time, if you can eat whatever you want and just lay around and not exercise heavily, I guess he's got some kind of secret powder or something. He's got to be selling uh, some kind of thing that's supposed to transform fat into muscle as you sleep at night or something. I'm not sure. I, I tried one time to watch one of his videos through, and uh, after several minutes of him promising to tell the secret in between just long spiels about what doesn't work, I got bored and gave up. I never found out what the secret was. I'm not sure so I can't share it with you this morning. I'm sorry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it ends with this promise. It says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And Paul's going to give us the secret to building up the body. What's the secret to to being pumped up or to pumping up the body of Christ? He's going to reveal the superfood, the thing that will make all the difference. He also starts by telling us what doesn't work. Like the guy in the commercials, he'll tell us what doesn't work, but his explanation is much more concise, much clearer, and much more uh, profound, and quickly gets to the point. And the point that he's going to make is this. You should make love the heart of your bodybuilding plan. You should make love the heart of your bodybuilding plan. And he already hinted at this in 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 1, where he wrote, knowledge puffs up like a bag of popcorn being inflated in the microwave. It's filled with air, a balloon being inflated. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And now he will tell us why love is the most excellent way. And furthermore, he's going to define for us what that love is. So let's look at why you should make love the heart of your bodybuilding plan. And I mean your plan to build up the church, the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a relatively short chapter, but it's one of the most recognizable chapters in the Bible. It's beautiful, it's poetic, 
It's often recited at weddings. It's applicable to every corner of our lives. And we'll note how it addresses a wide array of issues that Paul had already been dealing with in the Corinthian church. But we should also keep in mind the specific context in which Paul placed this timeless word. He was addressing spiritual gifts. In chapters 12 to 14, he teaches about gifts of the Spirit, what they are, how they're given, why they're given, and how they should be used, how they're appropriate to be used. And and right in the middle of that, God inspired this ode to love, this, this poetic verse about love. And that's because love is the foundation of what it means to be a spiritual person. When people think about spirituality, they don't often start with love, especially not love as it's defined here in 1 Corinthians 13. When people say that they're spiritual, sometimes they're talking about some vague belief in a higher power. They believe in a God or a higher power of some kind. Some people may think that they're more contemplative, thoughtful, philosophical, reflective than others, and they think that that makes them spiritual. Some people may think that they have a superior moral code or do more good deeds. And others have something like karma or horoscopes in mind when they think that they're being spiritual, when they're talking about spirituality. When the Corinthian church talked and thought about what it meant to be spiritual people, they thought about spiritual gifts or ways that the Holy Spirit would speak through them publicly so they would be recognized, especially they thought about speaking in tongues. It seems that they thought that speaking in tongues or uh, speech inspired by the Holy Spirit that, that wasn't understandable unless it was interpreted, they thought that that was the language of angels or the language of heaven. But their spirituality was anemic. They didn't have any real depth to who they were, and and their spirituality and their understanding of what it meant to be a spiritual person was even destructive. And so Paul addressed their weak ideas of spirituality and essentially says, you're no good without love. You're no good without love. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses one to three. He says this, if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Some people in the Corinthian church thought that the height of spirituality was speaking in a language they didn't understand, speaking in tongues. They thought that they were speaking that language of heaven or maybe a language from the future. They seemed to have thought that they had surpassed all the mundane things of life in the present and they were experiencing the life of the future, the life of heaven. And as such, they sought and they promoted speaking in tongues as the most spiritual thing a person could do, often to the neglect of other things. Corinth was known for its bronze industry, which is what the gong and symbols that Paul refers to were likely made out of. It's not that a gong or a a symbol serve no purpose, but outside the correct context, they just make things more difficult and distracting, don't they? Have you ever been to a church service where somebody has a tambourine and they don't know how to use it and when to use it. You ever been to one of those services? 
and you can't hear what's going on and you're really distracted because somebody's got their tambourine out and they're playing it, right? And it's not that tambourines are bad or they're always bad, but sometimes the people who think they know how to play the tambourine don't have a, a rhythmic bone in their bodies. And so they're just throwing everything off, right? And it, it serves to be distracting. It doesn't add to what's going on. It's just noise, right? Just noise happening. And that's what Paul is talking about here. If tongues don't have a context of love, they just make an indistinct, useless, distracting, irritating sound that benefits no one. But what about what seemed to be Paul's favorite gift, his recommended gift? He, he'll recommend it in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the gift of prophecy. Even here, Paul's own favorite and recommended gift. He says this, what if you could tell the future? You could fathom the mysteries of God and give people deep insight into spiritual matters. What if you had the kind of faith that overcomes every obstacle, believes God for the impossible, and witnesses the miraculous? Surely that's proof of spirituality, isn't it? Surely then, you see the guys on TV, right? They're waving things around. They're waving, other, they're waving all kinds of stuff around. They're knocking people over. Surely they're the spiritual ones, right? That's proof. They're the spiritual people. Surely that's the height of what it means to be closeness, close to God. But Paul says, you're nothing if you can do all of those things, but you lack love. What if you do astoundingly good works? What if you are the most charitable person in the world, or even you're the most faithful martyr, giving up your life for Christ? Surely that qualifies as profound spirituality. And almost unbelievably, Paul says that even these sacrificial acts without love gain you nothing. Now you may be thinking, hold on, I can understand speaking in tongues and maybe even prophecy and miracles without love, they're nothing, but how can self-sacrifice, how can you even do that without love? I think people do this all the time though. They do it so they can boast about their own good works. They do it so they don't feel guilty and try to make up for how they, uh, how, how they, how the guilt they feel in their lives by how they give to other things. They do it because they're trying to add meaning to their lives that's missing in other places. And people do good things because they're motivated by what other people think about them or how they'll be perceived by their peers. And it's not that the deeds or the works they do, the acts of charity that they do, are in and of themselves bad, but they don't have the kind of love that Paul's going to describe in 1 Corinthians 13 in them. They're incomplete, and they amount to nothing if they are done outside the context of love as described here. Let's get this into some more relevant terms, though, for us, because maybe tongues isn't your thing, or prophecies, or dying as a martyr. Maybe you've not done that yet. I don't think anybody here has, okay? So if that's not your thing, and you might be thinking, okay, well, what does this mean to me? Well, for me, I could put it like this. If, if I preach with the eloquence of Paul, the depth of Augustine, and the effect of Billy Graham, but don't have love, I'm nothing. I may as well be a really bad drummer without a band, or a terrible tambourine player in a service where everybody's just distracted. That may as well be what I'm doing. If I chase revival or you chase revival, read all the latest prophetic updates, outshine everyone in your Bible knowledge and have amazing faith, but you don't have love, you're nothing. 
If you're brave in standing up for your morality and your faith, you speak what is true in the face of opposition. If you're a generational talent in your field and you make a huge impact on the world, if you give your money away to charity and making the world a better place, you're working to save the environment, to save the whales, to save people from an evil regime, but you don't have love, all your good works are nothing. If you go to church every Sunday, you're a good citizen, you vote for the right candidates, and you treat everybody with decency, but you don't actually have love, you gain nothing. That's harsh. And it even kind of pulls at some of the things that we might normally in our culture consider loving, culturally loving. And it should inspire us to ask about the context of our own spirituality. Is my spirituality producing love? Are the things that I consider good and spiritual done in the context of a life of love, or are they done as a substitute because I'm not really that loving? Does my brand of spirituality focus on gifts and mysteries and knowledge or feelings to the exclusion of love? Do I have love? That can be difficult to assess, so... Paul helps us by defining what love is. We really need to define love. It's gotten so tarnished, it's gotten so confused in our culture. In many cases, our culture's definition of love is really the opposite of what the Bible calls love. For instance, in our culture, love includes affirmation of an individual's choices, regardless of if those choices are good for them, if they're moral choices, or if they're based in reality or truth. Love means that you affirm a person and who they believe that they are, even if they are not that thing. Love means that you accept and support things that are often harmful for people rather than good for them. It means that you have misplaced priorities, caring more about saving whales or eagles or the atmosphere than about saving the unborn. That's love in our culture. Love in our culture is like a vibe or a feeling, not making anyone feel wrong or convicted. I would describe love in our culture as nice. It's nice, but there's not a lot of depth to nice, is there? There's not much gravitas to nice. In contrast, listen to how God's word defines love. And I'm gonna probably, uh, you'll see it in the ESV. I memorized it when I was a kid in the NIV, so I'll probably mix and match as I go along. But this is how the, the, the scripture defines love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It isn't proud. It isn't rude. It isn't self-seeking. It isn't easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes for, it always perseveres. Love never fails. Paul's Paul's list or his definition of love, it reads like an ingredients list for a superfood. If ingredients lists were written in one of the most profound poetic stanzas ever written, then it reads like that. And, And Paul does not leave us wondering what exactly he means by love. He tells us what's in this superfood that helps to build up the body of Christ. Love is patient. Love is kind. These are the passive and the active responses of love. Patience pictures long forbearance. It is putting up with someone for a long time. Kindness is active goodness 
on their behalf, even if you have to put up with their annoyances for a long time. So patience is exercising restraint and not giving up on someone, even when they're disappointing or hurtful. And kindness is actively seeking their good. If you cross those who spout a modern kind of love, a contemporary cultural kind of love, you will not be shown patience or kindness. Love does not envy. Its motivation is not to be like someone else, to be noticed, to be liked, to be even with everybody. Love does not boast. It doesn't draw attention to itself with its words. It doesn't make braggadocious claims or pretend to be something that it's not. It doesn't talk over others in order to draw attention to itself. It is not arrogant or puffed up. It doesn't think of itself as better than others or in competition with them. I wonder if social media has skewed our perspective of love, especially in this regard. We sit alone and look at the world through this very limited window. We're thinking of the world only as it pertains to us, only in relation to us. How many likes did I get? Who commented? Did I get more likes and comments than the other girl or the other guy? Maybe we could add to Paul's earlier statement, if I make the most profound Facebook posts and share my insights on Instagram, if I declare my love for my husband or wife or significant other on TikTok and Twitter and then eagerly wait to see who admires me admiring my spouse but don't have love, I'm an empty glass or a hollow shell. Love is not rude. It doesn't behave shamefully or disgracefully. Contrary to what contemporary culture says, love is not interested in being true to itself in the sense that I'm going to do what I want to do regardless of how it affects other people. Paul had already been trying to correct the Corinthians' shameful actions, like in 1 Corinthians 5, 1-2, and some of them were arrogant because a man was sleeping with his stepmom and they did nothing about it. Or 1 Corinthians 11, 5-6, when some women were coming to church dressed in a manner that confused or blurred the lines between men and women and didn't care if it brought shame to their husbands or to the church or to anybody else. Or in 1 Corinthians 11, 20-22, when he rebuked them for their classism and how they were dividing themselves based on who was rich or who was poor, based on the haves and the haves not, have-nots, humiliating those who didn't have as much even while they ate the Lord's Supper. He's talking about that. Love doesn't act in those ways. It's not rude. It doesn't shame or embarrass others. The Corinthians were acting without concern for others. They were disgracing and shaming each other. And I recognize that there are cultural differences wherever you go, but we should not excuse rudeness by claiming it's part of the culture, or saying it's just, that's just how it is, and I just tell it like it is, and that's just my, I have a straightforward personality. No, you have a rude personality. You have a personality that embarrasses others and, and, and shames them, and it's demeaning to others. That's not just how it is, that's how you were, but you were washed, but you were cleansed, but you were redeemed. Don't write that off as an excuse of your personality. Don't say, well, that's how it is in the Northeast. No, no, not for Christians. How it is in the Northeast for Christians is that we're not rude. We don't seek to embarrass. We don't seek to publicly shame. We seek to love others. Our intent, our intent should not be to irritate, annoy, or embarrass. Love does not insist on its own way. Or better, it's not self-seeking. It's not self-interested. It's not narcissistic. 
And this is a danger that our culture of individualism, and especially one in which we often communicate electronically, can, can subtly feed this narcissistic tendency. But love does not seek to better itself at the expense of others. One Bible teacher, Gordon Fee, wrote that love does not believe that finding oneself is the highest good. Love is not irritable. It's not easily angered. It's not defensive. It doesn't have a victim's mentality. It doesn't see slight in every comment. It's not easily offended. It suffers long, even when offense is real. Neither is it resentful or better. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't keep a list of things that others have done to it. It's not counting up how you've injured it so that it can get even with you later or embarrass you later or try to hold it over your head later. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It won't pretend like evil is good and good is evil. And this is one of the primary differences between a biblical view of love and worldly love. Love is not glad when bad things happen to others, even if those others are its enemies. Love is not delighted by a lie, even if that lie produces what people think are good results. I don't particularly like how the English Standard Version translates verse 7. It says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Makes it sound as if love is naive and wishful. Rather, in spite of present circumstances, difficulties, disappointments, love continues to protect, continues to have faith continues to hope and continues to persevere. I like the way the NIV translates it. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It's not that love believes the best about everything and everyone as if love goes through life with rose-colored glasses and can't see when things are going wrong, when they're bad, but love continues in faith and hope even though it sees the evils and the pains of the world. It protects. The image here is one of covering like an umbrella or a roof that's put over someone's head. Love provides a covering for people that protects them and it encourages them. It believes, it doesn't believe in people. That's what love in the world does. It says, I believe in you. But love in the scripture believes in the God who created people and who sent his son to redeem those people. Love refuses to fall into despair because it trusts God's goodness. And so it always hopes It doesn't look at the world through rose-colored glasses, but it looks at the world through the promises of God and says, if God sent his son Jesus and raised him from the dead, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? And so it hopes for the future. Things don't look great. The diagnosis isn't good. There is war. There's injustice. There's pain. There's suffering. But love hopes because you can't protect, care for, and bless others if you don't have hope. Despair narrows life to a dark tunnel, but love broadens your perspective by hoping in Christ, and it perseveres because it recognizes that what is will not always be, and it hopes for a better future for people and for the world. It hopes for a future marked by the reign of Jesus Christ. And so, Paul says, love never fails. It's a word that means it doesn't collapse. It doesn't fall in on itself. It holds strong. It's secure. There's so much packed into this short span in 1 Corinthians 13. And I wish we could dive even more deeply into each one of these things and discover the nuances of each characteristic of love. We've already spent time uh, on on this brief overview. Perhaps the best way to sum up all of these characteristics of love, if you wanted to use one word, what is love, you just say this, Jesus. 
Jesus is love. You, you should make love the heart of your bodybuilding plan because you'll be like Jesus. This is what Jesus was like. It's his body that we're trying to build up. And I can't take time to give you all the examples of how Jesus fits each one of these characteristics that Paul names for love. But just think of a few with me, if you would. Jesus was patient, was he not? With his disciples, in spite of their flaws and failings, didn't Jesus endure and protect them? Didn't he want the best for them? He didn't keep track of Peter's wrongs. Though Peter had sinned against him three times, he made sure that Peter understood he had been completely and fully forgiven. He wouldn't just let go, un, un, lie. He wouldn't just let lies go, let them lie uncorrected, but he rejoiced in God's truth. And we certainly say that he bore all things for us, did he not? Just as love bears all things, his love is like a roof. It's like an umbrella from the judgment of sin because he always protects. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this prophetic or this poetic description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, when I read about Jesus' kind of love, I don't think, I've got that covered. What's next? Let's move on to chapter 14. We're ready to go. Uh, that's not what I think. Rather, I think, how am I ever going to live up to that? I'm ever going to incorporate, I mean, I've got a few of those things that I do pretty well most of the time. And then there are a number of others that I go, not so much. Not so much there. I haven't been doing so well there. I won't ever be able to work hard enough to have the kind of self-control that's, that's going to enable me to love like this. So what can I do? I can remain in Jesus. The beginning of verse 8 says this. It says, love never fails. I can't say that about me. Can you say that about you? I never fail. And since I can't say I never fail, then I can also not say this. I can't say Stephen is love. And if you're being honest, you can't say that about you either. You can't say I am love. You might do it better than me. You might love better than I do. But you don't do it perfectly. But the Bible says this. God is love. He never fails. God also tells us that he loves us. In fact, it tells, tells us that God has the kind of love that is described in 1 Corinthians 13. He has that kind of love for us before we knew him, before we loved him, and when we were still his enemies. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verses 7 to 8 tells us, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates or shows us or reveals or describes or explains his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, when we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. And even though I failed to love like this, God loves me like this. Even though I fail to love like 1 Corinthians 13, God loves me like 1 Corinthians 13. Let that sink into your soul for a moment. Even though you fail to love others and you fail to love God, in God's own terms, as described in God's word, he still loves you like that. You might have one or two of these traits most of the time, but don't pretend like you've got this whole love thing dialed in, figured out, nailed down, and yet God still loves you like this. And his love never fails. And since it is his stated goal in the scripture to make you like Jesus, and he does not fail, then he will not fail to help you learn 
to love like Jesus. That's how we do it. We do it because we remain in Christ. We don't despair. We don't just try harder. Certainly we can try, but more critical than that is that you would just stick in and remain in Jesus, that your mind would be turned to him over and over again, that your soul would be brought back over and over again to his cross where he demonstrated the love of God, where he displayed what his love for you is like, that we would receive God's love as a gift, that we would allow it to flow through us as a gift, that we would not arrogantly think that love begins in us. Certainly, we can love those who love us, but try loving somebody who does not reciprocate that love or even hates you, and you'll quickly find out how shallow your love is without God. In fact, let me just park there for just a moment because I want you to see something so critical about the love of God. Our culture claims to be loving. If you doubt that, just turn on the TV. You'll see commercials about how we're all loving each other and all this stuff. We, we see messages of love everywhere. We just got through Pride Month where love is love was on repeat, and yet if a person dares to question the prevailing ideas of morality or love in our culture, they will experience something our culture calls cancellation. And I want you to bear with me for a moment because you might think, well, he's just being gimmicky or harping on a cheap, easy target or, or he's being p- political, he's, he's parroting something he got from, from one political party. But, but I, I want to I talk to you about something that's profound about the love of God. Consider the kind of love that our culture promotes when people will, in one post, declare that love is love and we ought to love all people of all kinds and in the next post seek to destroy the reputation, career, and life of someone who disagrees with their understanding of what love is or what morality is. Whatever love they have does not in any way resemble the love of 1 Corinthians 13. The love of Christ hanging on the cross makes the love of this world look like hatred makes it look thin and shallow. It does not bear all things. It can barely bear the slightest offense against itself. It is irritable. It is more than rude. It is crass. It is demeaning. It takes advantage of children, not caring if they're present when it talks about its crassness or describes its love in the most demeaning and crass terms. It delights in slandering and smearing and lying in order to get its own way. It justifies its lies by suggesting that its cause is too great to fail. It's cheap. It's chintzy. It's hollow. It's a knockoff from the devil. It is not love. It's thinly disguised lust. Paint it with any color that you want. It's clear that this love is not love. But God loves you, even if what I just described a moment ago made you angry because you agree with the love of this world. Let me assure you of something right now. God loves you like the description we just read in 1 Corinthians 13. His love doesn't fail you. He wants to protect you. He wants to provide for you. He wants you to know his forgiveness and his grace. He'll put up with you for a long, long time. His love will not fail you. It means that even if your love is hollow, his love will not be hollow for you. God still loves you. It means that even where your love fails, God's love will not fail you. It means that when you have given up hope, God has not given up hope on you. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, you need to know the kind of love that God has for you. It's the kind described 
in words in 1 Corinthians 13, but demonstrated in life when Jesus died on the cross. See, God loves you in this way, that he sent his only son to bear your sin. And sin is pretty simple. You could define it as chasing a love that doesn't come from God. Sin is saying, I'm going to find satisfaction by finding and discovering love in the world or in in something that doesn't flow from the goodness and the grace of God. And so sin means that we reject God, we rebel against God, and we refuse to follow God's ways in our lives. But God loved you in this way, that even though you had rejected his love and decided you wanted to be filled with somebody else's, he sent his son to die for your sin. He took the penalty of your sin on himself when he died on the cross. And not only that, after Jesus had been buried on the third day, God raised him from the dead to demonstrate to you that his love never fails. That it can't be stopped. That it won't give up. That even death cannot defeat the love of God. And he offers you this love. And he doesn't say, come to me and work really hard. Come to me and get an apprenticeship where you're going to learn how to do things my way. He says, if you will come to me by faith, that is if you'll trust Jesus. If you'll trust that God demonstrated his love when Jesus died on the cross. And that his new life, as God raised him from the dead, represents that God will give you new life if you believe in Jesus you will be saved. It doesn't mean you clean yourself up. It doesn't mean you learn all the right things to wear to church, all the right theology, all the right things to say. It means that you trust Jesus and God will begin to pour his love into your life. He'll begin to pour his love in you by his Holy Spirit. You'll begin to understand what it means to be loved by someone whose love is not cheap or chintzy, that doesn't require you to be perfect all the time, though he wants you to move toward perfection and he'll give you his strength to do it. He wants you to, to know his, his grace in your life, who won't, who won't desert you at the first sign of offense, who won't abandon you the first time you slight him. He loves you, and if you'll trust Jesus, You'll know a love that's deeper than you've ever known in your life and that you will not find in the world no matter what label you put on the things that you're doing, no matter how many love stickers you slap on it. God will give you real, eternal love if you'll trust Jesus. You should make love the heart of your bodybuilding plan because you're no good without love and you'll be like Jesus. Lastly, to stick with our bodybuilding theme, You'll make permanent gains. Read verses 8 to 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Remember, Paul's point in describing love to the Corinthians was to correct their misuse of spiritual gifts. So he now reveals to them the permanence of love. They thought that tongues were the language of heaven, and they wanted to be knowledgeable in spiritual things. But one day, prophecy will no longer be necessary because when we're with the Lord in his kingdom, we will see clearly. One day, knowledge will pass away in the sense that everyone who's in God's kingdom will know fully. It'll be like the difference between a child and an adult, Paul says. Our understanding and perception and maturity will grow up. It will be complete. 
As I said earlier, Corinth was known for its bronze, including its polished bronze mirrors. And Paul said that we look now as if in a mirror. And it's not that their mirrors were bad quality. In fact, they were actually fine quality mirrors. They were really good for the time. It's not that they were bad. Rather, Paul is saying that there is a difference between seeing a reflection and seeing something face to face. Probably the best analogy in our time is a picture. Have you ever taken a picture of something only to show it to somebody else and say, well, this picture doesn't really capture what it was like. You'd you'd have to be there. You really should go and see what this place was like. And that's what Paul was saying. Prophecy, tongues, gifts of the Spirit, spiritual knowledge, it's all good. But when we see God face to face, it will no longer be necessary And Paul wasn't damning spiritual gifts with faint praise, nor was he suggesting that they are unimportant in the present. We still live in the present. And chapter 14 is going to go on to describe the goodness of spiritual gifts and how we should use them and when we should use them. But if you want a glimpse of the face-to-face character of God, if you want to experience something that is eternal, something that will last forever, Paul says, that's love. Even faith and hope, as important as they are, will one day end. We won't need to have faith when Jesus returns and our faith shall be sight. We won't need hope to, to, uh, to, to continue going forward when the object of our hope is before us. When I'm on a trip and I hope to get home and see my wife, when I arrive, I don't stand at a distance and look at her. I embrace her because my hope has been fulfilled. And so I no longer hope to see her. I see her. But my love for her continues, whether from a distance or from from, uh, near. Spiritual gifts and really every other present gift that God gives in our lives and in the church must be placed in the context of love because it is the one gift of God that endures. It is both present and it is future. We experience it now and we will experience it even more fully when Christ returns. But it will never stop because God's love never ceases. And so if we want to experience revival, it will include a revival of real love. If we want spiritual gifts, they have to be supported and upheld by love. If we desire to know the nature and character of heaven and a taste of the, fut- of the future in the present, then we will remain in and we will grow in God's love. Let's not grow distracted from love because love never fails. Love is the superfood for building up the body of Christ. We desire revival. We want to make an impact. We want our church to be strong in the Lord and used mightily to reach people with the good news of Jesus. But if we lack love, we'll be nothing. So how's your love when compared to the love described in 1 Corinthians 13? How is it? Is it weak? Is it lacking? Don't be discouraged. Ask God to fill you with his love. You can't love like 1 Corinthians 13 describes without him. And listen, love hopes. And so what will never do you any good is looking at 1 Corinthians 13 and thinking, I'm no good, I'll never make it, I'll never be able to love like that, because that won't lead you toward greater love, because that's not hope, is it? But love hopes. It always hopes. And so if you want to grow in love, hope. Hope in God. Trust God. Trust that God is able to do what you cannot do. Trust his spirit's work in your life. Continue to remind yourself 
that the Holy Spirit is in you and working. And then when you sense him prompting, be obedient and love. When you sense that you're unloving, ask for God's forgiveness and then ask for his help to be the loving person that you should be. Believe that God can work his love through you. I want to ask if you'd close your eyes for just a moment. I'm going to ask if our prayer partners uh, would go ahead and come, and also our deacons, deaconesses, uh, our, um, our pastors. If you'd come, we're going to pray for people this morning. And, and if you are in, in, a, in a state where you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, you don't, you don't know him, you don't know the love of God, you've not experienced that strong kind of love that we talked about this morning in your life, and you want to experience that today, then in just a moment, when I call folks forward, when I call people forward, you come and you pray with one of those who are here. We would be happy to ask the Lord to minister in your life and to lead you to, uh, to receive him as your savior and to ask him to help you to know his kind of love. But I wanna ask those who are believers something as well. Maybe you're in a circumstance in which you need God's help to love. And it doesn't mean it's gotta be like a drastic thing, right? I mean, a lot of times it's the normal day-to-day stuff, the irritations, the difficulties, the annoying people at work, the annoying neighbor, the stuff we see on the news that gets under our skin and it causes a response that is unloving. Maybe you've noticed an irritable response toward your spouse or you've noticed an irritable response towards your kids. Maybe you've noticed that there has been something in you that despairs rather than hopes. You've given up on somebody. You no longer trust that God is gonna be able to work in their lives because you've given up hope, you've given up loving them. Maybe you've given up persevering in their lives and seeking them, seeking their good. Maybe you've given up being the protection to somebody because you thought, well, God's never going to to, to minister here. This has been too long, I've done too much, and, and you just, You just don't know how to continue. Today I want to encourage you. If you are lacking in love, and that could probably be all of us to one degree or another, would you come and just believe that God will work a a, a new work of love in your life? And just as an act of faith, just say, God, I can't stir up this kind of love in me. I know I'm, I've been angry. I know I've been impatient. I know I've responded with, by getting even with people. I know I haven't responded by, by uh, being kind or I haven't responded by being long-suffering, but I've been short-suffering. I've been impatient with people. And, and, and you want to ask God, God, I can't do it myself. Will you do it in me? Today I remember that I'm not enough, but you're enough. And I haven't given up hope that you're going to work your love in my life because my love is thin and it's shallow. So I want your love today, Lord. That's what this altar call is for. That's what this moment of prayer is about. If you're sensing God needs to do a new work of love to rejuvenate, to revitalize your love today, then we want to pray with you. We want to spend a moment and just ask God together that he would do that work in your life. And so if that's you, You want God to do that work of love in your life. You need to be reminded of his love. Or maybe you need to sense his love in a fresh way in your life. Or maybe you don't know his love because you've never given your life to Christ. I'm going to ask if even now you begin to make your way forward and just find someone to pray with. If you're sensing, Lord, I I need 
I need you to do a new work of love in my life. Holy Spirit, I need you to give me your kind of love. I need you to pour the love of God back into my heart again because it's been thin. It's been shallow. And I know I can't stir it up on my own. I know I can't do it on my own. I need your love today. Just come and find someone to pray with. They want to minister to you for just a moment. And don't hesitate because you think, well, what does somebody else think about me? Listen, if we're being honest, all of us could use this prayer, all right? I, I should come down and receive prayer as well because we are all lacking when it comes to God's love in our lives and how we display it to others. And so don't let that keep you from coming and praying with someone and receiving ministry this morning. But come and receive what God wants to do in your life. And as you come, I'm just going to pray. And the dismissal today is going to be a little bit different, okay? There's not going to be a big grace and peace. You go quietly so that you don't disturb those who are praying, but you can feel free to go when you need to after I close in prayer. Heavenly Father, today we thank you for the grace you've given us and for the way that you've demonstrated your love to us through your son Jesus. Father, we thank you that you have showed us the kind of love that we don't know how to give to others so often, Lord. We don't, we don't know how to display it to them. We, we, we struggle to do it. We feel the weakness of our own flesh. We, we feel the, the, the inability to be patient and to suffer for a long time. Lord, we ask that you would help us. Please forgive us where, Lord, we've had responses and reactions that were totally unloving. Forgive us, Lord, where our kindness ran out way too soon. Forgive us, Lord, where, where we lacked the kind of grace that we should have shown. And Lord, today, we don't turn to you in hopelessness. We turn to you in hope that your word says that you will pour your love out in our lives. Jesus, today we recognize that our response can't be to just try a little harder. But your word says that love is a fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit. And so we turn our attention to your spirit today. And we ask, Holy Spirit, produce love in our lives. We pray, Lord, that from the youngest, our children, that they would know your love, that they would understand the greatness of your love toward them, that they would know, even from a young age, how to begin to love others. Lord, work out the selfishness and the self-interest out of their lives. Lord, even as they're told by others how they ought to be who they are in a worldly sense, teach them to be who you've created them to be. Teach them to stand firm and strong in your love. Be with our youth, God, who are being taught a thin and cheap uh, ripoff of love. Lord, I pray that you would help them to have an experience of your love that would so grip their hearts, that would retain them and reserve them for you forever. Lord, that they would so experience the love of Jesus in their lives that they would be able to share that love freely with others without fear of what their peers will think. God, and I pray for us as we set an example as adults of what love should be. Teach us to be maturing in your love. Help us, Lord, when we fail not to give up, but to press forward knowing that you will give us what we cannot give to ourselves, that you will produce love in us as we stay connected to Jesus, the vine, and as we walk in the Spirit who produces love in us. We thank you for that, Lord, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you'd like to respond, there's still time. We would welcome you to do that. Otherwise, have a great week.